Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Aaron, the food science babe. Aaron has a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Minnesota and has worked in the food science sector for over 10 years. And she's developed quite a large following recently thanks to her vocal stance against many myths used by the food industry to promote certain types of products such as organic or efforts to demonize products such as GMOs. I think one of Aaron's main goals is to remove the fear from choosing food products. I think this is a hugely relevant conversation because even if we try not to be affected by attempts at food marketing, we are still exposed to them constantly. And this can influence our way of thinking about certain foods. Uh, I know that I definitely used to think that organic produce was always better and that we shouldn't eat foods containing GMOs. And Hopefully after this conversation with Aaron, you'll have some new information to help better inform your decisions about the foods that you eat. I really loved this episode and I hope you enjoy it yourself or even learn something from it. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Um, I massively appreciate it and I would, it would really help to promote the podcast to more people. So, on to this conversation with Food Science Babe. Let's talk science. Thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> An absolute pleasure. Um, like I was saying earlier, uh, I've been really, really looking forward to speaking with you and I've had a lot of people um, who have been following you for a while and have literally been pestering me all week with, uh, with questions <laughs> that, I, that I have to ask. So like I said, Great. it's an absolute, absolute pleasure to be speaking with you. Um, and I suppose just, just to start off the, the whole conversation, um, just for anybody who might not be familiar with you, um, and there probably aren't very many, um, would you be able to, to give us a little bit of uh, an introduction to, to who you are and a little bit about your background um, and, and what you're currently doing, please? Yeah, so um, I went to school for chemical engineering, actually. Um, I didn't actually really know that I wanted to be in the food industry until um, until I graduated. Um, I ended up working at a large conventional ingredient company um, in the middle of nowhere in Iowa at one of their corn milling plants, um, more in an engineering role. Um, I did it for about six months and kind of decided I wanted to get more into the research and development side of things. Um, developing food products and stuff like that. So I ended up um, getting a position in their research and development lab for their uh, snacks products. Um, so that's kind of how I got started, I guess, more into food science. Um, so I was kind of in a role that was kind of in between like a food scientist and an engineer. So I, um, I ran a small pilot plant. Um, so I would take what the food scientist developed on the bench top, scale it up to the mid-size uh, pilot plant, and then from there I would take it to full-scale production. So that's that's how I got started in being involved with food. Um, and in that role, I I learned from the food scientist how to develop benchtop uh, products and stuff like that. So I was, I was in that role for about four or five years. And then um, I actually, at the time, was more of an organic foods consumer. Um, I I believed that it was healthier. Um, I guess I really hadn't looked into the science behind it. So I just kind of bought it thinking like, oh, this is probably healthier. Like I can afford it. So why not? Um, so I actually ended up quitting that job and searching out more of a natural organic company to work for. Um, so that was also snack products. They did a lot of ready to eat popcorn products and stuff like that. And I kind of, 
started questioning it when I was in that role. Um, I was the one that got their products all non-GMO verified. And um, so I kind of started questioning it when I was doing that, just kind of realizing how arbitrary the, the, the non-GMO label was. And like, it was just a lot of paperwork that you would submit. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, you'd pay them money and you'd get to use this label and just being involved in a lot of the marketing meetings as well. And, you know, the discussions were never around like, oh, let's do this because it's healthier. It was always like, oh, who's our target market? And, you know, typically if it was moms of young children, like they are going to pay more for these labels. And so I just kind of started realizing like how arbitrary it was and how it was just like basically marketing and it didn't even necessarily really mean it was healthier. Um, so I, I guess I, st I still ate organic still. I never, I never really searched out like non-GMO. I wasn't really sold on that one, but I still ate organic and thought it was healthier. Um, and then it wasn't really until I had my daughter uh, four years ago that I just kind of noticed a lot of that, you know, like organic, you know, baby food and you go in the baby food aisle and everything's non-GMO and organic. And I just realized like, it's just so marketed towards like, especially moms and dads of young children. And, you know, it's like, Hey, if you don't feed them this, like you're poisoning them. And so I just really started like wanting to actually look into it. And I mean, just from a cost standpoint too, like, do I need to buy the organic or am I okay buying conventional? So that's kind of when I actually started looking into the science behind it. And, um, realizing that a lot of my beliefs that I had had, even though I'd worked in the food industry for, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, um, I still didn't really know until I actually looked into the studies and really questioned it and um, looked into the science behind it. So um, that's kind of why I, st I started my page. I, you know, I was seeing on social media, a lot of, you know, accounts like food babe and stuff like that. And just realizing how, you know, they're using, they're using parents' fears to, to make, you know, make them buy organic and non-GMO when really they're no safer or more nutritious. And I was just getting really sick of it. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to start a page and <laughs> see how it goes. And yeah, it just kind of went from there. So now um, I, I take care of my daughter most of the time. And then I also work part-time as a consultant in the food industry. Um, so I work for a lot of different startups, small food companies doing product development work. And then I create nutrition panels. I advise them on like regulatory things that they can say and they can't say on their package and stuff like that. So. Fantastic. Um, I, I think one, one thing that you touched on there and one thing that I find really, really important is so, you know, you yourself, you're a mother and I think it's perfectly normal for parents to be very, very concerned for what they're putting into their into their children um, and what they're giving mm -hmm. them to eat, for everything to do, to do with their child's health, it's 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 a perfectly natural reaction for parents to want the absolute best for their children. Um, right. And like you said, um, it's very very easy to prey on that desire to kind of look after your to, for your child's well being um, through marketing. And would you say that like the fact that people were preying on that specific desire was one of the, the, the big drivers for you to kind of become, let's say, a, an advocate for, uh, for this. Yeah, it actually, it actually ironically started with something not even having to do with food. So um, before my daughter was born, uh, we found out at 38 weeks that she had had a stroke. And so all of my preconceived, like, 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to puree all of her foods and all, you know, all that kind of stuff just kind of went out the window and we were just hoping she was going to survive and she was going to be able to eat on her own. Um, so kind of after that happened, it just gave me a lot, like a, just a way different perspective. You know, it was like, I was planning on breastfeeding and it was like, she wasn't able to, but she was able to drink from a bottle, which was huge. Otherwise we were going to have to have a feeding tube. And so a lot of like my, like, oh, natural is better and all that kind of stuff kind of went out the window. And I realized like, that's not what's important. Like <laughs> what's important is that she's able to eat, she, you know, and she, and stuff like that. And then um, on top of that, so she ended up being blind and she has um, cerebral palsy as well. And so as a, as a parent with, you know, a child with disabilities, you're, I was researching all the time of, you know, things that I could do to help her. Um, so I actually came across um, a, a Facebook group of uh, stem cell transplants that a lot of parents were doing for their kids with uh, cerebral palsy. And the more I looked into it, I realized it was being done by chiropractors, and naturopaths, and all that kind of stuff. And so that kind of just got me on the path of, like, realizing how people just take advantage of, especially just super desperate, desperate people. I mean, it's like parents of children with disabilities will do anything to help their kids. And so it kind of just, like, it just kind of went from there. I was like, wow, this is ridiculous. And then it kind of just ended up on the path of food somehow. Um, so, yeah, I just get really mad when people prey upon, you know, not only desperate parents, but also just parents that are trying to do what's best for their kids. And, you know, it's like, if you don't, they'll, I mean, they'll literally say things like, you know, if you don't buy organic, you're poisoning them. <laughs> it's just like, you shouldn't feel guilty about feeding your children healthy food. So that's just really what really makes me mad about it. No, no absolutely. And, and I, I think, so the fact that you were willing to put in the, the effort to research about, you know, organic foods and then, you know, originally in, the, in that, that group about uh, stem cell research, to put in that mm -hmm. research is, is one thing that's absolutely fantastic. But the fact that you were willing to actually be more active about it and to put out information about all of these kind of these, these poor practices within food marketing or whatever they may be that are preying on people's fears, I think that's right. absolutely and um, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to getting into some of that conversation tonight. And kind of yeah. just to, um, to, to kind of to start off, because there's a lot of things that we could potentially talk about, and I just don't think there's enough hours in the day to actually get through everything that, we, that I'd yeah. like to speak about. Um, I think the first thing that I'd like to talk about is um, the term uh, genetically modified organisms. And before we get into it, I was wondering if you'd be able to tell everybody listening what exactly a GMO is. Maybe if you could tell us... Um, how that relates to how crops were originally designed or developed um, mm -hmm. before we had GMO technology. Yeah, so GMO is actually not necessarily a super scientific term. So it, it's genetically, it stands for genetically modified organism. And uh, basically that term came from the non-GMO project. So they started a label, um, the non-GMO project verified label, and they decided to take uh, transgenic crops. So there are, there are many different ways of modifying a crop. So we've been crossbreeding um, crops for thousands of years. That's a, that's, that is a genetic modification technique. Um, we've also been using something called mutagenesis since the 1930s. And they, um, they basically use radiation and chemicals to induce mutations. Um, and... You know, nobody necessarily 
has issues with those types of genetic modification techniques. Um, they've been around for so long, a lot of people don't even know about mutagenesis, but, you know, mutagenic plants can be sold as non-GMO and organic. Um, so basically, once um, scientists started, you know, in a lab going in and, and messing with genes that way, which is way more precise than, you know, crossbreeding or mutagenesis, those those ways of doing of modifying genes are very random. Um, they don't know exactly what's going to happen. So the the modern techniques that they use now um, are so so much more. Uh, I mean, they can control it so much better. You're not getting all these different random mutations and stuff like that. So, but people were afraid of it because they, you know, you see all the images of you know, a, a syringe being I injected into a tomato and, and stupid stuff like that. So basically what happened was the non-GM project, project capitalized upon that fear and they created the term GMO, which only refers to transgenic crops. And then they created a label around it because people were afraid of it and they wanted to avoid it. Not because it's scary or it's unhealthy or it's bad, but because they were just, they didn't understand it and they were afraid of it. So that's where the term GMO came from. It's, it's not even really, bioengineered is the more scientific term for it. So um, the USDA actually in 2020 next year, they're going to start requiring a mandatory label for bioengineered foods. Um, and it will hopefully, it will hopefully um, teach consumers more about it because right now, I mean, anytime you have a label on something that says non or, you know, without, you know, it's like people are just going to be afraid of it. So even if they don't know what it is, it's like, well, this doesn't have it, so it must be bad, <laughs> which isn't true. But that's what consumers, that's what they think. They see a bottle of orange juice that says non-GMO and one next to it without. And they're like, well, this one must be better, even though there aren't even GMO oranges out there. So that's the thing with the non-GMO um, label as well. They're putting it on things that don't even have a GMO counterpart. So it's a 100% a marketing label. Um, so the bioengineer label is going to be more science-based. So let's say there's sugar that comes from GMO sugar beets versus sugar that comes from non-GMO sugar cane. Right now, the non-GMO project could stick a non-GMO label on that sugar from the sugar cane. Um, however, the GMO, the sugar from the GMO sugar beets will not require a bioengineered label because it's so refined that there's no genes in sugar. So it, it's going to make a lot more sense. And I think it's also going to show consumers like how much of our food isn't genetically modified. I think consumers think that it's all modified unless it has the non-GMO stamp. And like, that's not true at all. There's only, there's only 10 GMO crops. Um, so, yeah, I just, it's just kind of a ridiculous term that they came up with just to, just for one single genetic modification technique that is way high, more highly regulated and way more precise than these older techniques that aren't regulated at all and are way more random. So, it, once you understand it, it's like kind of the opposite. <laughs> it seems kind of like the opposite of what it should be. Um, because, yeah, I mean, crossbreeding and mutagenesis, like, they use those all the time, and they can commercialize a product, you know, they still have to go through some some testing and stuff like that, but 
they're not regulated like trans, you know, transgenic crops have to go through so much testing. I think it takes an average of like 13 years and $130 million before they can market them because they have to go through so much testing. Um, so to be afraid of those, but not, you know, not be afraid of the crossbred and the mutagenic crops, it just doesn't make any sense. And they're just as safe as, as um, their non-GMO counterparts too. So, yeah. I, I think that that's, that's a fantastic point, like that they are just as safe. So just kind of to kind of jump in with a little story there. Um, when I did my undergrad, I did it in microbiology. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had a major focus on biotech. Um, and during university, I worked in a health food store. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously in the health food area, you have a huge counterculture against uh, GMOs and things like that. And that rubbed off on me until I started doing my first lecture on uh, lectures on transgenesis and plant breeding and things like that. And I realized that, oh my God, this technique that we have in a lab where we can, you know, put genes from one organism into another is so precise and we know exactly what we're getting out of it. Yeah. Where with other techniques, like you said, mutagenesis, um, it's a completely random process where you may get a plant with another trait, but you don't know what other genes may have been altered with, within right. that. Yep. And there's none of that regulation that uh, a transgenic plant has to go through. Like you said, it probably goes through about 13 years before it can go, um, can make it onto the market. Whereas mm-hmm. something that's been uh, crossbred through mutagenesis just goes straight onto the market. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that to say, oh, mutagenic plants are, you know, they're dangerous or anything that they're not. They're safe right. and we've shown them to be safe. But it's the same that we can say that there's an order of magnitude of extra safety with a transgenic uh, plant right. that people aren't aware of. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people also, I mean, use the appeal to nature fallacy as well. Like, oh, well, those other ones are more natural, but I mean, they're not because humans are still crossbreeding and they're still inducing the random mutation. So yes, it can happen out in nature. Obviously the sun can, can, you know, is radiation. So it can induce mutations in plants. So, but also um, recently they have found that some some plants just naturally have been uh, have been produced in nature. I think the sweet potato is one of them, but they have um, they have been created through transgenesis naturally. So they have actually found it happening in nature as well. So I mean, not that that was like a valid reason in the first place, but <laughs> it's really not a valid reason now because it, it has happened naturally as well. So Absolutely. yeah. You also mentioned that um, there were some crops that don't have a GMO counterpart, but they're mm-hmm. still receiving a, a non-GMO label. Um, yeah. Just like for, for people who might not be familiar, what are some of like the, the common crops that actually are GMO or, sorry, have a, a GMO counterpart that's on the yeah, market? Yeah, so the 10, let me see if I can remember them. But so it's so uh, cotton, canola, uh, corn, so field corn and sweet corn, um, there's a, there's a potato that is, I think like a non-browning potato. Uh, there's a non-browning apple now that's six, um, uh, soybeans. Uh, I have the whole list on graphics I'm, on my I'm page. Not gonna, <laughs> I can't remember. I'm not going to put them on the spot, but like <laughs> only 10 crops. So yeah. like out of, out of the huge amount of crops that we consume food from. Yeah. Only ten of them have a GMO counterpart, right. and yet you see so many different objects that have that non-GMO 
uh, label on them. Right. We may not have a, a GMO counterpart at all. Yeah. And yeah, that's supposed to encourage us to buy that. Right. And I know a lot of people will say, well, oh, a lot of things get processed from, you know, corn and soybeans, which it does. I mean, there's a lot of processed foods that have ingredients that are derived from corn and soybeans. However, most of them are so refined, like oil and sugars and corn syrup and all those things, like they don't have any genes in them. So technically, even though they have come from a GMO crop, they don't contain genes. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just ridiculous that <laughs> that label. I mean, that label can be you can find it on salt and bottles of water. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, bottles of water without um, with with GMOs. It's uh, it's what <laughs> age we live in, right? Yeah. Um, one one thing that that is rather incredible about about this whole let's say the, the non-GMO. Um, and I'm going to call it a fallacy because you mentioned mentioned the natural fallacy there earlier. Um, but there is a massive backlash against from certain individuals that are very very anti-GMO in their stance, and mm-hmm. they 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 will actively campaign to to eliminate all forms of GMO or to to not have any testing done or to not have GMO crops grown in their region. Do you have any idea where where that that adamant um, kind of anti-GMO sentiment comes from? What, what, what do you feel is, is, is kind of terrifying people about GMOs? I think just people don't understand them. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, I mean, there was, there was a survey or a study done that the people that were most opposed to GMOs knew the least about them. So it has to do with education. It has to do with all the things that you know, even the things that before I really started looking to it into it, you know, I was questioning it a little bit like, oh, are they bad? You know, I think I think people just see things, you know, on social media and typically they're not positive when it comes to GMOs and they just they believe it and they use the appeal to nature fallacy to say like, oh, it's not natural, you know. Things like they say, oh, oh, it's created in a lab. Like somehow that makes it like bad for you. I don't know. I think it. I think it really just comes down to the education part of it. Um, people just don't. They don't understand it, and so they're scared of it. Um, no, yeah. no, I, I, I agree. Um, uh, ignorance does lead to fear of. Uh, yeah. We, we're afraid of things that we don't understand well, and right. that, that might be a. That's probably a failing on on let's say the part of. The government, but I'm also very, very much aware that there's a huge amount of misinformation that's being put out there, and like it's just fantastic that we've got individuals like you that are kind of actively um, not willing to stand <laughs> up uh, for that uh, that BS that's in the industry. Yeah. Um, uh, w- one thing that I, I kind of wanted to to move on to from there um, is just 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 while uh, kind of moving away from GMOs is onto the topic of organic produce um, mm-hmm. and. So like, as a nutritionist, um, it's kind of my goal to, to help clients be as healthy as possible. That, that's what I want to do. And I obviously do that through food. And funnily enough, recommending organic produce is, is not something I have ever done um, mm-hmm. uh, professionally to, to anybody. I've, I've never said, oh, yeah, if you want to get healthy, you, you need to switch to, you know, to all organic produce. Um, but just kind of to, to, as we get into this topic, just to, to start us off, would you mind clarifying what organic foods are exactly and how do they they differ from conventionally produced foods yeah so basically there's a set of regulations for organic foods so there's certain um 
certain pesticides that they can't use. However, they can use nat some naturally derived and some synthetic pesticides. So it's just basically a set of regulations, farming regulations, as well as certain ingredients can't be used in organic foods as well. Um, so like I said, the, the pesticides, um, if, it's, if it's meat, the animals have to be eating organic, uh, organic grains and stuff like that. Um, so they're, they're basically just a list of, you know, in order for your farm to be organic approved, you have to follow these regulations. And then in order for your food, your food products to be organic certified, they have to obviously be made with organic ingredients um, and then also not include any of the ingredients that aren't allowed in organic foods. So people oftentimes look at those regulations and they sound good to the consumer that doesn't necessarily, you know, know much about farming. You know, it's like, oh, they don't allow these 500 pesticides. Well, that must be good, but it's, it's not necessarily good that they're not allowing, you know, for pesticides that they could potentially use in lower quantities. Um, so a lot of the synth synthetic pesticides that can be used in conventional farming that can't be used in organic farming um, work better and they potentially are better for the environment as well. And so per organic regulations, they might have to use a naturally derived one that they have to use a lot more of it. It's worse for the environment, but to the consumer, it's like, oh, they don't use these 500 chemicals. So it's, you know, it sounds good. Um, they also don't allow for GMOs, um, which as far as environmentally is not a good thing. Um, GMOs allow for farmers to grow a lot more food on a lot less land. Um, they allow farmers to adopt no-till farming, which is a lot better for the environment. Um, uh, so just things like that, you know, consumers assume GMOs are bad, so organic doesn't allow it, so they think it's better. But these regulations aren't translating to safer or healthier food, and they're not translating to better for the environment either. So one thing that you mentioned that was really interesting is you said, obviously, in, in conventional farming, we've got a huge amount of um, potential uh, pesticides that can be used. Yeah. Um, synthetic pesticides. And you said that in um, organic production, they can still use pesticides yep. as long as they're natural. Is that correct? Yeah, as long as they're naturally, naturally derived. And then there are, there are, there is also a list of synthetic pesticides that they, that are allowed as well. So you can go on the USDA website and see all of the approved and uh, not approved uh, pesticides but that's a huge, I would say that's the biggest myth around organic is that people think that they don't use pesticides, but they, they do use pesticides and there are pesticide residues on organic foods as well. So I, I think for a lot of people, that's going to be very, very surprising to hear. Um, yeah. One, one thing that I find particularly interesting about this, and I know this is something that you, you've spoken about quite a lot, is the issue of uh, using the term uh, synthetic or artificial and mm -hmm. natural. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier with the naturalistic fallacy that you mentioned. Um, but people tend to think that if something has the word natural, if something is found in nature, it is automatically better. Right. <laughs> um, if something is made in a lab, um, if something is synthesized, I think people, people don't like science. People don't like laboratories. They don't, don't like the idea of, of scientists <laughs> working with like little beakers and test tubes and stuff like that. But yeah. if something is made in, in, in a lab, it's automatically bad and 
that's not the case. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Whether a chemical is natural or synthetic tells you absolutely nothing about how safe it is, how toxic it is. I mean, some of the most toxic chemicals we know of are natural. <laughs> so to say that that's another reason why people think organic is better. You know, they hear that organic can only use naturally derived pesticides and they immediately assume that that's better, but it's not. You have to look at the, you have to look at the chemical compounds and you have to look at their, their toxicities as well as the concentrations they're being used. Um, so just saying like it's natural, that doesn't tell you that it's better or worse than something that's synthetic. No, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, because there, there are plenty of compounds, like you mentioned, in nature that, that can be completely toxic. Um, right. And, but, you know, like if, if we were to put things into two categories, if we were to say, okay, things on this side are completely uh, synthetic and things on this side are completely uh, natural, if you automatically assume everything here that is natural is good, you know, you're, you're at a huge risk. Like you, you could, you know, something that's, you know, completely natural, like a bot bot botulinum toxin. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, or or right, uh, you have some of that, and you know you're you're dead with tiny tiny amounts. Whereas yeah. we have loads of synthetic preservatives and whatever that you know are that help us to keep food longer, and right. we know that in the doses that they're used in, they're perfectly safe. Exactly. Yeah, that's actually a good example. Is preservatives. A lot of people immediately hear, immediately hear the word preservative and they think bad for some reason, but you know it's you know even if it's a synthetic chemical that's you know not allowing the food to mold mold is natural but i think that we'd probably rather consume the synthetic preservative at a safe level than the mold or the bacteria that would grow on it if it wasn't there so that's a perfect example <laughs> absolutely I, I completely agree and and, and just on, on top of that like so one of the issues that we have in the world and i think we're going to talk about this a little bit later when we, we get onto the environmental side of things is there are too many, there are probably too many people on earth and it's very, very difficult to feed that amount of people. So anything that we can do that helps us to feed more people. So be that, um, you know, like if, if we can use preservatives to preserve food, make sure it lasts longer, doesn't spoil means we're able to feed more people with the, with the bit of, um, you know, agricultural space that we have. Um, and I just think it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that some people are so against this, you know, the, the fact that something might have a preservative and that it might last a bit longer. Right. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I've just, I've just remembered something that I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a little bit later. Hopefully I'll, I'll remember, but I, I'm going to stick on the organic produce for, for the moment. Um, and one thing that you mentioned there was, was the dose of pesticides that people use. So mm -hmm. one thing that I know people are a little bit concerned about is, um, let's say, uh, and I'm using this very much in inverted commas, is the toxic load that uh, a product can have. So the, you know, we, we assume that um, conventional products have a certain amount of residual uh, amounts of uh, pesticides left on them, mm -hmm. and that over time they could potentially be harmful to health. And people also assume that organic product products don't suffer from that um, issue. Is that the case, or is, is it a little bit more complicated than that? No, so um, so yeah, like I said, organic and conventional both have uh, pesticide residues because organic farming use pes uses pesticides as well. They have similar levels. Um, the levels are so incredibly low that you would literally have to eat a toxic amount of whatever food it is before, way before you would get to a toxic amount of the pesticide that's on it. So. Um, the USDA has a, a pesticide residue testing program, so they test 
they test different um, produce every year just to make sure that the levels are within the tolerances. So a lot of people, for some reason, think like organic is regulated and conventional isn't, but they both they both have to they have certain tolerances for every single pesticide. Um, they they regularly detect levels of pesticide residues on both conventional and organic at hundreds of thousands of times below the the acceptable daily intake levels, which are set very conservatively, hundreds to thousands of times below their their level where they would show, you know, where they might have some sort of negative health effect. So basically these levels that they're detecting regularly on both organic and conventional produce are so incredibly low. I mean, we're talking about like parts per billion levels. So you, like I said, you'd have to eat a deadly amount of any food before you would even come close to, you know, a harmful amount of pesticides. So one example was the Cheerios that was in the news like a few months ago. And the EWG had found glyphosate on Cheerios and everybody was freaking out like they needed to throw their Cheerios away. Um, so I calculated it out, and I think a 30-pound child would have to eat, like, 600 bowls of Cheerios a day for it to potentially, the glyphosate maybe, to potentially have some sort of effect. So a lot of people just assume, like, any sort of detection of any chemical that they think is scary somehow, like, is just horrible. But there are safe levels of pesticide residues. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and they're similar on both organic and conventional and like i said just because they are natural pesticides on organic that doesn't make that that doesn't make them safer either so there's a website you can go to it's called safefruitsandveggies.com and you can see how many i think they do like the dirty dozen so like the top the top 12 that the ewg deems as like the dirtiest uh produce or whatever and you can see how much you would have to eat before before the pesticides would have some sort of effect. And it's like, it's something crazy, you know, like 300 servings of strawberries a day or something like that. So it's just ridiculous um, that they are scaring consumers about, especially about produce, which is, you know, something that we probably all need to eat more of and we shouldn't be afraid of it, um, conventional or organic. Um, so to be scaring consumers over like produce and they might not be buying as much of it is just ridiculous. I, I think actually that's one of my main concerns when it comes to organic produce is that mm -hmm. there is, the, the organic industry has done a very, very good marketing job of kind of um, making people fearful of conventional produce. Yeah. And because of that fear, people almost are reluctant to consume uh, non-organic produce because they assume that it is going to be automatically unhealthy for them whereas they're putting themselves in a you know they have a less chance of living a healthy life if they're eating less produce so the more produce we can get in, into people the right. better and i think that organic uh marketing has kind of done a disservice to that kind of message that you know nutritionists the people who are you know into healthy eating are, are trying to get out there that, that you know we want people to eat more produce but people are genuinely afraid right they're Oh, I'm not, yeah. I, I can't afford the organic stuff, so I, I just eat a little bit less. And, you know, I, I have, you know, one bowl of organic uh, spinach a week. And, right. you know, that, that'll do me. Um, and that, yeah. Yeah, that, that is a major, a major concern. Another yeah. thing that you mentioned um, about the residues was 
the dose that people needed to um, to eat for it to be toxic. And I know you speak very, very frequently about um, the importance of dose when it comes to the toxicity of, of compounds uh, used within in, in food. Um, a lot of people tend to think, like, so you mentioned the, the was it the dirty, the dirty dozen? Um, yeah, came, yeah. Yeah, so the, they're basically fruit and veg that, that have a, a lot of pesticide residues detected on them. Is that correct? Okay, so <laughs> no. That's the other thing about the, the dirty dozen. So, so the EWG is essentially an activist group that promotes organic food. So they're funded by the, like, organic companies. Fund them. They're a nonprofit, but that's the way that they get funding is to essentially scare consumers over conventional so that they buy organic. So what they do is every year they put out a list of what they call the dirty dozen and the clean 15. They take the data from the USDA that I was talking about that, that shows that our, that our produce is very safe from a pesticide residue perspective. They take that data and they, they don't even take into account what the chemicals are or what the concentrations are. So I'll just give you an example that's not necessarily realistic, but let's say, let's say strawberries, they detect, the, the USDA detected, let's say 20 different um, pesticide residues. Um, so, and then let's say blueberries, they detected 18 different pesticide residues. So the EWG would take that and put strawberries at the top of their list they're literally just looking at the number of pesticide residues. They're not taking into account what the chemicals are, what the concentrations are. They're literally just like, this one has more pesticide residues detected, and that's how they make their list. Um, however, all of the things on their list are completely safe. What they also don't ever tell anybody is that organic has pesticide residues as well. They completely just don't even talk about organic. Um, it doesn't even enter into to any of their, you know, lists or anything. So they just completely disregard the fact that organic also has pesticide residues. They fear monger over conventional. So, you know, a lot of people, they'll be like, okay, well, I don't have enough money to buy everything organic. So I'll just, I'll shop the dirty dozen and I'll, I'll buy all those things organic. So, so whereas the conventional is just as safe and and as nutritious as the organic. So, they're just they're just scaring consumers and it's not even really based on science because they're literally just taking the number of pesticide residues d detected to make their list so yeah so it has absolutely nothing to do with the actual concentrations of uh, no. Uh, no. and the fact that they're way below the tolerance level so there's no reason we need to be afraid of it like the usda puts out that data showing us that our food is incredibly safe and then they take that data and they scare consumers about it when it's like this data is out there to show us that we have a very safe food supply. So it's just ridiculous. If you were to listen to certain people um, who are quite vocal on, on social media, for example, you would be you wouldn't be blamed for believing that the opposite is true in that you wouldn't be blamed for thinking that we have quite possibly one of the most unsafe food supplies ever because of the amount of chemicals that we're using. But it's not that. Yeah. It's not that way. No, it's because the chemicals are, it is safer. It's not right. Yeah, and like the other thing too. Um, so I think what really put it into perspective for me is, um, so plants produce their own, you know, pesticides. That's how they survive in nature. So um, 
a scientist, his name is Bruce Ames, he, he like calculated out how much of these natural pesticides we consume um, in, uh, and he kind of, so he, what he calculated was that we consume, the 99.99% of the pesticides we consume are produced by the plants themselves. So that's how low these residue levels are. And like, nobody's afraid of these chemicals that come from the plants that in high doses can be just as toxic as these synthetic pesticides that the farmers are spraying on. But for some reason, it's just so much more scary when like they aren't in there naturally. Again, appeal to nature fallacy, like, oh, well, they're in there naturally. So they, you know, they have to be safer. Well, go out and eat some, you know, <laughs> go out and eat a, some hemlock or something. I mean, you know <laughs> what I mean? So <laughs> these, there are plants out there that will poison you. So just to um, clarify everything. We are not finding it. <laughs> yeah, well. don't actually go do that. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, oh, just because these aren't naturally on it, they must be, like, less safe, whereas, yeah, 99% of the pesticides we're, we're eating are produced by the plants themselves, and nobody's, nobody's fear-mongering over that. Nobody's afraid of that. So it just doesn't uh, make sense. I, I, I think, see, what, what, what we're kind of getting at here is that there is a massive industry based around fear fear of things that are poorly understood by the lay public mm -hmm. and certain certain marketing organizations have done a fantastic job of playing on that um, because if you, if you want to get some people to do that fear is a really really good way of doing that um, mm -hmm. one thing that you touched on that I, I would like to kind of uh, jump into is you mentioned that um, conventional produce has the same um, vitamins and minerals that uh, organic produce has. And this is something that I hear very, very frequently um, from people. They automatically assume that because something is organic, it's automatically going to be higher in vitamins and minerals. Is that the case? Mm -hmm. No. Um, there have been a lot of different meta-analyses that have been done that show um, that, you know, the, the difference in vitamins and minerals in different crops has so much more to do with where it's grown, you know, year to year, um, variations like that, you know, like what the weather was like, that, just stuff like that versus, I mean, so to say like everything grown by this one method would be healthier than everything grown by this other method, it just doesn't make sense, you know, when you, when you think about it. And also the studies don't show that either. Um, there, there's the same variation between conventional and organic Um, that there could be between two organic farms or two conventional farms. So it's not the fact that, like, this one's grown, you know, organic versus conventional. Like, that wouldn't even make sense for all the produce that's grown on, an, on organic farms to be healthier. So, yeah, that is one thing that the, the science shows that their, you know, overall organic isn't, isn't safer, isn't healthier than conventional. Um, yeah, I liked what you said there about the, the, the variance within foods. And I think when you're dealing with anything that like is, and uh, I'm careful about using this word just because of the conversation that we're having with any natural product, so a food mm -hmm. or a fruit or a vegetable or whatever, there is always going to be a huge amount of variation um, from right. one piece of produce to the next. And like right. even a little bit of research that I've done um, on organic produce and looking at the levels you see so much variation within, like, like you said, based on where the product is from, within different varieties of the same vegetable. Right. You know, 
Um, yeah. A huge amount of variation. And that's what we see when we look at it. We don't see that, you know, organic is always higher in, in vitamins and minerals. Um, right. We just see fluctuating levels between all the studies that we have. Um, yeah. So that, yeah. that's something that people, I really wish they were more aware of. Um, yeah, right. One, one thing that I kind of I want to, to get into here is, um, so with my, the, the whole name of the podcast is The Health Scientist, and I decided to go with The Health Scientist because I didn't want to focus just on nutrition. I wanted to focus on all aspects of health. But when I'm speaking about organic produce, I always speak from the perspective of a nutritionist um, and talking about the potential health implications. But one thing that I often get countered with um, uh, when I speak about uh, or I speak my thoughts on, on organic produce is um, I get a lot of people talking about the potential environmental impact of um, organic uh, agriculture. And people will always say, well, look, um, even if it's not better for you nutritionally, it's better for the environment. And that's why I want to continue to buy organic produce. Um, is that the case? Is there a genuine argument for organic being better for the environment? No, it's actually the opposite. So that was actually one reason why I was an organic consumer too. So I, you know, I was like, well, maybe if it's not any healthier, at least it's better for the environment, but it's actually the opposite. So organic farming takes something like 20 to 40% more land to grow the same amount of food as conventional. So that's huge. Um, that's the biggest reason why organic is worse for the environment. So there's that. And then there's also the fact that they don't allow for GMOs. And GMOs allow for farmers to use less insecticides, so certain uh, uh, pest-resistant uh, crops such as BT corn, BT soybeans, um, they require less, less insecticides than um, a non-GMO counterpart. So there's a lot of environmental benefits that come with GMOs and the fact that Organic doesn't allow for that on top of the fact that organic just takes a lot more land than conventional. Um, so they're also um, herbicide tolerant crops allow for farmers, very large scale farmers to adopt no-till farming practices, which obviously eliminates greenhouse gases. You know, they're not using their tractors as much to till the, till the soil. Um, it's a lot better for the soil if you don't have to till it. Um, so that's another huge reason why um, conventional is better for the environment as well. So that's another thing that, you know, goes along with a lot of the organic products is they market it as better for the environment when in reality it's actually worse for the environment. So, um, yeah, <laughs> yes. it's just kind of ridiculous once you know. But see, this is it when, when, when you know about it, because if, if, you ask people to think about it logically, people will think about it in, in a very, very basic level. And you say, um, do you think organic produce is safer for the, for the environment? People are going to think, well, they're using less chemicals, potentially. Um, that's what ha happens in somebody's head. If they're using less chemicals, less chemicals get into the environment. It's potentially going to be better that way. But if you think about it on, you know, if you genuinely go into it and you go into the numbers and how um, food is produced, you realize exactly everything that you've said there, that we've got a huge right. amount of, of land use that we, we, we would need far much more land if we were all farming organically. We probably right. wouldn't be able to sustain the, the population that we have on the planet if we were using right. And another thing is yeah. the amount of um, physical input that needs to go into, into the land if it is, um, is uh, non-organic. Because 
it takes more efforts, it takes more work, it takes more machinery, it takes more uh, greenhouse gas, um, let's say uh, fossil fuels to fuel all of that. And it's, it's just something people don't think about, but it does mm-hmm. all contribute to, let's say, uh, right. a global net negative effect from from agricultural, uh, from organic right. agriculture. Exactly. Um, yeah. One, yep. one thing we've spoken a lot about here is like the, so we did mention one of the benefits of conventional agric- uh, conventional foods being um, the fact that uh, they they're better on the environment, um, and we've spoken a lot about their their safety and their their kind of equivalence to um, uh, to organic produce when it comes to just general food safety. Um, are there any other benefits or like real major benefits that you can see from using um, non organic or even GMO crops? Um, over the uh, or, or organic or you know conventional um, uh, produce. Yeah, so I think the environmental thing is is one of the huge ones. Um, uh, obviously, you know, organic. I don't like. I don't say like, oh, don't eat organic. I mean, a lot of people, if they have all this information and they still want to eat organic, like go ahead and that's, you know, that's your choice. Um, I just think it's important, you know, for people to, to know this and they're not buying it out of fear. That's the biggest thing. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of, you know, even I at one time would shop the dirty dozen and I would buy less produce because, you know, a, the store wouldn't have organic strawberries. So I just wouldn't buy any strawberries or B they're more expensive. So you're going to buy less. So I think the biggest thing is just, you know, not being afraid. And like we kind of talked about before, eat your fruits and veggies and don't worry about whether they're organic or not. Because, you know, if you're worried about buying organic and then you eat less overall produce, that's going to be a lot worse for your health than buying the conventional produce and then eating more produce overall. So, um, I mean, I think that is, I would say, would be considered a benefit of buying conventional because it is typically less expensive and um, organic really isn't any better. There's no reason to be spending more on organic. No, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, the one thing with, with this whole conversation is that it does tend to spark a lot of debate on, on the internet. And like, obviously you, you said here that, you know, you, you're not telling people what they should do, you know, like, and I completely agree. If somebody wants to go out and spend the extra on organic produce, go ahead and do it. That That's your choice as long as it's an educated choice. But some people when you, and this happens very, very much um, in the sphere of, you know, basically when we're talking about food, um, because people seem to have very, very uh, almost religious beliefs um, when it comes to their food. Um, But people can get very defensive about it. And I know for a fact that, you know, you've dealt with a huge amount of um, backlash from from your comments and from from your 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 advocacy for um like you know the, the more conventional or the, the GMO products, um what what is it that you think is driving that backlash and and, and that you know those, those strong emotions that are kind of against what you're talking about? Yeah, so I think I think once you've believed in something for so long, it's really hard to accept that maybe you were wrong. And I know it was for me. Um, So when I was eating organic, um, I went to a conference. This was when I was in my first job at that conventional ingredient company. 
And um, I remember listening to a speaker there, and he was speaking about GMOs in a positive way, speaking about conventional in a positive way. And I was sort of getting mad, like, this guy is not telling the truth. Like, what the heck? And I was getting mad about it, and I wasn't, I wasn't accepting that, like, maybe he's right. Um, so I, I get it, and, I, and it was really hard for me, too, once I – once I understood it better and I was like, oh, I was wrong about this. I mean, it's hard to say. It's hard to say you're wrong. I mean, especially if you have told people in the past, like, oh, you should eat organic. It's so much better. Oh, you need to buy non-GMO. And then all of a sudden you learn. And then it's like, oh, well, I don't want to, I don't want to admit to them that, <laughs> that I was wrong. Like, I don't want to start buying all this conventional stuff and, and seem like, you know, I didn't know what I was talking about before. So I think it's just difficult for people to, once they've, once they've believed in something, I mean, it comes a part of your belief system almost. And, um, it's hard for people to look at new information and to accept that maybe they were wrong about it. So I think that, I think people just get really, yeah, it's just, it is kind of crazy how angry some people get about it because, you know, I'm not, my page isn't at all anything about my opinions or, I'm never telling anybody what they should eat. I'm just putting the information out there and you can make your own decision. Like, like I said, if you have that information and you still, there's an organic farm that you live by that you really like and you want to buy from there and you want to support them, like that's great. But as long as you have the factual information, um, I just, yeah, I don't get why people get so angry, but I think it's like you're almost attacking their beliefs in a way. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, and no, I, I completely agree because I, I think it is when you're attacking somebody's belief and when it, when it comes down to beliefs, people tend to associate themselves or identify themselves very, very much with, with their beliefs. So somebody yeah. somebody might think, oh, I am very, very much, a, I, I, am, I am organic. I am an organic person. I, I only have organic produce. Um, and they may, like, if, if you're kind of challenging those beliefs with information, it's putting them at risk at thinking that they were you know, they're potentially, they're being hypocrites if they change their beliefs. You know, they're being a hypocrite to their former self. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah. It, it's something that's absolutely, um, it's very, very prevalent in, in, in when we come to speak about food and food beliefs and different types of diets and stuff, stuff like that. Um, right. And I think people being open to the idea of new information, being open to, to listening to new information and learning new things is incredibly important. Um okay for people in general when it comes to their yeah. food. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's um, just kind of crazy how, how defensive people get about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if anybody wants, uh, wants to, to, to see what we're talking about, just hop over to uh, Aaron's uh, yeah. Instagram. And you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, you, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've, I've enjoyed this so much. And like I said, we could probably talk about this um, for hours about different topics that you cover. Um, but I'm, I'm very conscious of your time. And um, just before we say goodbye, uh, would you be able to tell people how they can um, follow you a little bit more and where they can find out more about you? Yeah, so um, obviously on Instagram, Food Science Babe, and then Facebook, Food Science Babe, and then on Twitter, Food Sci Babe. So, and then I also write a monthly article for Egg Daily as well. Fantastic. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for that. Everybody, if, if anybody is not... 
uh, following Erin, which I imagine everybody who's listening to this already is. Please do follow her. She puts out amazing content. She's putting out information that's incredibly important for for people to know and to be aware of. Um, and we're very, very grateful for for all of that information that you put out. Um, so with that, I just want to say, Erin, thank you very, very much. And yep. um, hopefully we'll get to talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. If you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use or maybe even share a link on social media. It really helps to spread word of the podcast and it really means a huge amount to me personally. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of our guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.